to join me in your Bible in Revelation chapter 2, Revelation chapter 2, and uh, we're going to read a passage of scripture together, and uh, then I'll have a word of prayer, and then we'll get into the lesson here this morning. I'm, I'm going to try to avoid a whole lot of review this morning because uh, next week we might have a little more room for that. So uh, anyway, Revelation chapter 2, um, if you all can read be, beginning at verse 1, ending at verse 7, and uh, I'll ask Pastor Brinker to start. And the angel of the church of Ephesus writes, these things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. I know thy works and thy labor and thy patience and how thou canst not bear them, which are evil. And thou canst thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not, and hast found them liars. And has borne. Let's go ahead and pray. Thank you, Lord, for uh, just the opportunity this morning and for those that are able to be here. Uh, obviously, Lord, there's still a number of folks affected with sickness. We pray that you would work in their lives and just uh, help them through physically through these, uh, this time. And then also, Lord, just uh, work in each of our hearts spiritually as you would want to. Uh, today, we ask, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. I have a handout. I'm... If I can get it separated here, that I will pass out. Mm -hmm. Welcome. You're welcome. And I do have a several copies of a couple of the past ones. If you're missing one and would like one, let me know. If I don't have it, I can always print another one off. Not a big deal. So, All right, Revelation chapter 2. This begins uh, in these two chapters. Remember this section in Revelation. Uh, seven individual letters to the seven churches who are the, uh, who the book of Revelation is addressed to. All right, remember in chapter 1, that. All right, and then remember verse 19, key verse. Uh, again, I'm going to try to get... Let me uh, do something here to just speed along, hopefully. Something's missing... 
chapter uh, 1, verse 19 is uh, really a key verse in, in the book of Revelation because it lays out just kind of the framework for uh, how the book is to be understood. There's a little bit that was in the past as of the right, as of, you know, Jesus speaking in verse 19, put it in that context, all right? There were very little, obviously, in Revelation up to that point, but things in chapter 1, then he said, write the things which are the present things from, again, the perspective of Jesus speaking to John in verse 19, all right, and really which was the, the matters dealing with the churches in this church age, and then there were future things that were going to be written. Those were yet to be shown John as of the perspective of Jesus speaking to him in verse 19, all right, and pretty much those begin uh, in verse 1 of chapter 4. So most of the book, as far as the content of the book of Revelation, I think there's exactly 12,000 words, by the way, in the book of Revelation, according to the count in the defined King James Bible. If you have one of those, I, I like that. It has the, the numbers of chapters, of course, that's pretty easy. Verses and then numbers of words as well uh, counted there. But I think there's exactly 12,000 words in the book of Revelation. In, in our KJV, and obviously the majority of those deal with the third, the third area here, the future things, all right? Uh, but that doesn't mean that the present things or even what was past in that setting are not important, all right? They're very important. So we, are, uh, we introduced it in the previous two lessons as we looked at verses 19 and 20, of, uh, of chapter 1, and so now we want to jump into, and again, we might do a little more review on that, what's in 19 and 20 when we get to next lesson, uh, but here I want to focus our time on this message, this letter, this epistle, that word's not used here, but really it, it's very much like a, any other New Testament epistle, a letter written to a particular group or uh, an individual, but mostly to churches in the New Testament. Uh, most, of course, were penned by apostles, and of course, they're all given by inspiration of God. The very words were breathed out by God, all right? Um, however, these seven are a little unique, you could say, because although obviously all of the New Testament was given by God, by inspiration, these seven letters are directly, really directly dictated by, of course, John di doing the dictation, Jesus doing the speaking here, and he tells him, you know, exactly what to write. Again, they're not any more inspired than other parts of the New Testament, but these are direct words from Jesus to these seven churches here. And uh, again, I, we'll mention more about the significance of some of that a little bit later. Before we get into these specific verses. You've already read the verses here, and again, trying to set the context. Ephesus, okay, is the first church. The, the church at Ephesus is the first church addressed here. Uh, you know, whether or not this is uh, why it's addressed first or not, but as far as we know, in the context of the New Testament, Bible history and so on, uh, this would have been the first church established in that area. And in a way, in a way, you could think of it as kind of the mother church of the other churches. 
You can turn there with me. I want to read a short passage in Acts chapter 19, which uh, I think it's a good idea to, when you're studying the Bible, all right, the New Testament, for example, uh, when you're studying it, I think it's a good idea to not only when you, hey, buddy, hey, you going to go to Sunday school? Yeah. When you're studying the, uh, you know, parts of, like, say, the, the epistles and that, to understand them also, compare them to uh, the book of Acts, because there are a number of times where what is, you know, the church that's written about or whatever, you can see information in the book of Acts about it. So it's kind of like a parallel uh, thing there. Kind of like in the Old Testament, if you can place, it, to me anyway, it's helpful if you place like the prophetic books and various things in their history in the, in the historical books and so on. It kind of helps shed uh, understanding of the context and so on. Anyway, that said, Acts chapter 19 is really probably, we could say, the main chapter, history chapter, concerning the, the church at Ephesus that we have in the New Testament. And Paul, by the way, unlike many other uh, places that he went to, Paul spent a lot of time in the city of Ephesus. It was a very important uh, place. It was, a, you know, as far as the, the Roman Empire, it was a very important city. It was a chief city in that, that province, that area. But also it was an important center of ministry. Uh, this is interesting to me, but... Uh, in, in Acts 19, again, verse 1 says, And it came to pass that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul, having passed through the upper coast, came to Ephesus and finding certain disciples. Now, jump down. This isn't Paul's first exact stop at Ephesus, but he had previously stopped there on the second missionary journey. This would be in his, I believe, his third missionary journey here. But he, he um, uh, had made a previous stop, but he didn't stay there. And uh, obviously the Lord had burdened his heart about this place. He goes back there and he spends much time. If you jump down, all right, we won't read that incident that's talked about there for now. But if you jump down to verse uh, 8, and he went into the synagogue. That was a normal practice Paul had. He wasn't going to church, so to speak. All right, he was going into the Jewish synagogue because Paul had credentials, he could go teach in a synagogue. He was, he was a rabbi, basically. And, you know, he, he could go in there and, and do things that obviously none of us would be able to do, all right? But, and even the other apostles weren't qualified to do that. Paul, that was a unique opportunity he had, and he took advantage of it. That's usually where he started when he went into a city, is the Jewish synagogue. And uh, because those people already had a background, right? They had a, they had a background in... in Bible and God and, and, and so on, uh, compared to the heathen, uh, so to speak. The, uh, you know, so that's where he started, all right? Same thing here, all right? So he went into the synagogue, spake boldly for the space of three months, disputing and persuading the things concerning the kingdom of God. But when divers were hardened and believed not, but spake evil of that way before the multitude, he departed from them and separated the disciples. So in other words, he spent three months uh, visiting this synagogue and teaching there. And then finally, enough of the uh, you know, resistant Jews 
rose up, made a disruption, and so that opportunity wasn't available anymore, all right? And so he takes the disciples, he separated the disciples, so those that were followers of Jesus, all right? He takes them and he starts meeting in this, what's called the school of one Tyrannus here, all right? Now, notice that, so he, he changes locations, he's He's meeting with people regularly at this place. I guess you could say he, they're holding church, doing church. All right, but notice verse 10. And this continued by the space of two years, so that all that dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord, the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. All right, do you see what's happening here? Because of this, Paul stayed in what this place. And he's meeting with people, but obviously at the same time, he's training people and people are going out all over the area of what's called Asia here. Again, that's not the continent of Asia in our modern geography. That's the province in the Roman Empire at that time of Asia or Western Turkey today. All right. But it says this was so effective that all that dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus. That's a significant statement if you think about that. Because of the ministry that was going on in Ephesus. Now, it wasn't just Paul, okay? Paul is obviously a key figure in this, but there were many others involved in this, all right? And uh, because of that ministry in Ephesus, the whole region heard, heard, at least, something about the gospel, something about the Lord Jesus. But that's, that's quite a statement. I mean, we could park here for a while and just start asking about that, you know, and we would all be shamed, I'm sure. But think of that, all right, in the context of this letter from the Lord Jesus to this church. That's the same church that's being written here. There's also, of course, an epistle, the Ephesian Epistle to the Ephesians, written to that church. There's more in the book of Acts about it as well, but the book of Ephesians. 1 Timothy. You remember the context of 1 Timothy? Paul left Timothy in Ephesus. All right? Uh, And 2 Timothy is different, but he left Timothy in Ephesus. All right? And there's, there's other references to that. The Apostle John. Now, the Bible doesn't explicitly state this, okay, but from other sources, we understand that the Apostle John spent much of his life in the city of Ephesus and and ministering out of that city. And so, again, this is the first church that's addressed here in this series of these seven letters to these churches because, and, and perhaps, again, because it was a significant church in the, in the context of these other churches. It had a role in these other churches, all right? And so, these seven letters of these churches begin with this very important message from Jesus Himself to this first church. And again, as far as we know, the first church in that area here at Ephesus. This letter addresses an all-important issue that every church and every believer must be careful to guard against in its life as a church, in our lives individually. All right, this church, I mean, when you read what you all just read a few minutes ago, when you read that letter, I mean, particularly until you come to verse 
uh, uh, for. I mean, this is a church that I don't think any of us would not want to be a part of. I mean, this was a, a model church, obviously, in many, many ways. But they did have an issue, all right? And that's what the Lord addresses here. And by the way, he doesn't state this here. But it's interesting in the letter that he does state it in, but a future letter that we'll see here uh, in a number of weeks, he tells a church that those that he loves, he rebukes. All right, so this is, this is all these letters, all right, that deal with these issues. They're all, they're all motivated by the Lord Jesus' love for these churches. But he's not, you know, he's not like looking down on them and trying to, you know, find something wrong and nitpick and so to speak of that, okay? That's not his point. He is concerned about what's going on in these churches, but it's motivated out of his love. And you think of, ironically, I just, I just put this together in my mind as I was thinking of this verse, but in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, it says Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. All right, so this is, this is motivated by love. But notice, we, uh, hopefully this, I don't have to, I got a few slides. I might have to, <laughs> okay. Well, sorry. Remember that, we, we talked about that. These letters have a consistent structure to them. There are a few exceptions in there, and We'll point some of those out as we get to them. But for the most part, these um, letters have a sevenfold structure to them. If I can ever get to the slide that I want. All right, here we are. Um, so in this letter, we see, first of all, the church addressed, very simply, all right, under the angel of the church at Ephesus. And we talked about that angel of the churches before not going to get into that again right now. Under the angel of the church at Ephesus, right. So the Lord Jesus is addressing the church. I have a little bit of information there about the city of Ephesus and so on. I, I, I'm not going to say anything. Don't plan to say anything more about that right now. And as well as some of the historical context connected with the scripture, uh, the New Testament that we have there. But you see this church addressed, all right? Then you see the Christ described. And, and again, this is consistent with these letters, how Jesus addresses all these churches, all right? Singles out the church. Then he says something about himself. And as we said previously, note that for the most part, everything that Jesus says about himself, the, the particular characteristic that he mentions about himself or a couple characteristics, as is often the case, they basically go back to that vision in chapter 1 of what John saw, all right? But here you have the Christ described, and here Jesus basically says two things about himself. He says that he's the one, notice in verse 1 again, these things saith, he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. Basically, those are two things that John said he saw in that vision about, of Jesus back in chapter 1, if you remember. There's a slight difference here. Jesus says, John said he saw Jesus in the midst of the candlesticks. Here Jesus says he's in the midst of the candlesticks, but he's not just there. It says he's walking about 
I mean, this is an interesting concept if you think about it, and we can't dwell here forever, but it, it, both of these, okay, both of these um, uh, statements here, I think, point to the relationship that Jesus has with his church in the sense he's the head of the church, all right? He is to be the head, all right? Not every church recognizes him as the rightful head, but he is, he is the legitimate head of his church, but also he is to be that, okay? And if, if you understand what I'm getting at, the church is to submit to him in that way, right? But here you see this idea of him as the head of his church. He has a unique relationship with that church and all his churches, and it's, he's pictured here as being in their midst and walking about. He has fellowship with them. That is his intention, all right? Um, but he's the Christ in the stars, Christ in the candlesticks here. All right, refer, referring back again to the verse uh, 19 and so on there in and 20 of, of chapter 1, as well as the statements that, of John seeing those things. But an interesting relationship that's said here. This isn't a statement of judgment as some of the other descriptions of Jesus that we'll see are, definitely. This isn't a statement of judgment, a description of judgment. It's more of a description of, you know, yes, I'm the one that, you know, I'm in authority. I have a position of authority, but I want your fellowship as well. We are together in this. And there's, there's a lot of things probably that could be developed and talked about in this, but this is just, again, as you look at the letter and what he says, keep these things in mind, all right? So, and we have to move on. But notice, thirdly, the third area that, that, that's common in these letters that you see is a commendation, all right? So some positive things that Jesus says about the church here. And, and again, most of the churches, he, he does this. There are two exceptions in this, all right? But commendation deserved, all right? This church was an exceptional church. And keep in mind that what we read back in Acts 19, because of what the Lord was doing in this church at Ephesus, there were a whole lot of others that were able to be affected. Now, I don't think the church can take credit for that. Right? It was the Lord working through them, but they obviously were used of God. This was an important church. And in this, there's really, I have it, three things listed here, okay, but there's really a couple areas that are really, really exceptionally commended from the Lord to this church. Notice, first of all, their dedication, all right, I have that here, right? He says, I know thy works, here in uh, verse 2. I know thy works. Now, you'll see that statement starting out as he talks about every one of these churches. I know thy works. So, in a sense, it's just kind of a general statement of I know what's going on. All right? And keep this in mind as well. We can't hide anything from the Lord. He knows all. All right? Uh, but he says, I know thy works. And in this case, that is a positive thing. He says, I know thy works and thy labor... Now, you would think labor and works kind of go together. They're definitely two, to, two different words. The first one is more of a general term, 
you know, I know your works, your deeds, I know what you're doing, that kind of an idea. Labor here is the idea of something that's intense. It's something that's, you know, it's toilsome. It's, it, it involves a struggle. It involves, you know, an exertion on their part. There, this, is, this is a church that is doing things for the Lord. They are working for the Lord, you could say. And that should be a characteristic of any of the Lord's churches, should it not? I mean, this, you know, a church doesn't exist to be a social club. A church doesn't exist just to have fellowship with one another. I mean, that, there is a part of that in a church, but a church exists to work for the Lord. That's, why it, that's one of the whole main purposes of a church, right? To do the Lord's work. And this church, again, I'm, I'm emphasizing that because the Lord is saying, this church is doing it. They are working for the Lord. He says, I know thy works, thy labor, and thy patience. This word takes it even a step farther, you could say, because the word patience here has the idea of your endurance. They didn't quit, they, even in the face of difficulty. Every one of these New Testament churches faced difficulty. Back in that first century, and particularly in the time, you know, the closing of the first century into the beginning of the second century was a time of severe, intense persecution by the Roman Empire on churches, on Christianity. And uh, this, these churches were suffering for the Lord. Interestingly, in the book of Acts, right, the historical record of the churches, right, the first type of opposition you see arose from whom? Who, who, which, what can you think of there? First type of opposition came from the Jews, from the Jewish leaders. It was a religious. Then the governments got involved, all right? So then it's more civil persecution. And that's not unlike many things today in this world, all right? But you, you see as he's commending them, he sees their dedication, their works, their labor, their patience. Their, again, patience has the idea of endurance, steadfastness, their perseverance. Typically, the difference, now I can't say it's always the case when you see the word patience or the word long-suffering, but they are different concepts. The word long-suffering has the idea of people-related. In other words, you are long-suffering with people. You are we use the word patient with people, but that idea. Patience in the New Testament typically has to do with circumstantial things. You're enduring circumstances. Long-suffering is you're enduring people. <laughs> that kind of an idea. Um, but anyway, then you see their dedication. Then notice also their doctrine. And this is this is something that is said of this church that's not, there are things here said of this church that are not said of any other church. Now, first of all, before we even read this, I want you to think about something. In the New Testament, we have one particular passage that um, talks about the reason for God giving certain gifted, they're called gifts, but gifted people to churches, all right? And in that list in Ephesians chapter 4, book of Ephesians, uh, talks about a pastor, teacher, all right? But it talks about, it, it even states why God gave those gifts, 
those to churches. All right, and there's a list of things there, all right, for the perfecting of the saints, all right, is the, for, for the, so that the saints can be perfected, and literally, there's a difference in prepositions there, and, and the literal idea is that to perfect the saints, to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. And then it leads on, but it talks about being unmovable, being steadfast, not being blown about by every wind of doctrine. That's, that's a result for the, the gifts that God gives to a church, all right, and a pastor and so on, all right. And, and point being, all right, this church at Ephesus exhibited that they had had good pastors because notice says he knows not just their works, their labor, and their patience, but he says, how thou canst not bear them which are evil. And thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not, and hast found them liars. And then he goes on and he says, And hast borne, and hast patience, and, hast, and for my namesake hast labored and not fainted. He's intertwining a couple things here, all right? Their, their dedication, their work, all right? Uh, and so on here, but their doctrine, excuse me, also says they couldn't bear, and, and literally the idea is they couldn't stand it. They could not put up with those that were evil. Now, that's not a negative thing in the sense that he's saying, you know, that they should have. He's commending them for it. In other words, they did not tolerate evil in their midst. They were a church that was a, to use, I think, a New Testament term from Ephesians again, they were a pure church. They had a purity of membership. And by the way, a New Testament church should have a purity of membership. Now, that doesn't mean it's not possible for, uh, you know, I guess let me stop for a second and make a couple clarifying statements. That doesn't mean that people in a church are never going to sin and so on. But when sin is significant enough in a church that it affects, it's, it's public and it's, you know, it, it should be dealt with by a church. And that is not the typical practice in most churches today. And I, I, Tim and I, my son Tim and I, were talking about a particular situation. I'm not going to mention it publicly here, but uh, just because we had at one time kind of lived in an area where this was taking place, and actually I had met the man myself personally, and I mean, he seemed like a great guy and everything, but this man's in prison today for uh, molesting little girls. We'll just leave it at that. I mean... Baptist preacher. But the point being, his church was a large, influential church. Uh, I say he's in prison today. He, he might actually be dead by now, but he did go to prison and um, confessed to it in court. So by his own admission, it's true. Um, but his church, in their dealing with it was they quietly... When they, when it was, you know, 
widely enough known in the church that they couldn't hide it anymore, they shipped him off to another country to be a missionary. You know, that's what you call lifting the rug and trying to sweep it under. And I mean, the biblical thing to do is to deal with it and to exercise church discipline and so on. I mean, sadly, that's how most churches in my personal experience and observation operate. But anyway, I can't keep dwelling on the point. Point is, they did, they exercised purity in their church, okay? And that's, I mean, we should all be striving for personal purity in our lives. And as a church, we should be striving for purity in the congregation. That is a biblical model, a biblical fact. And, and the Lord commends this church for that, all right? Now, not only when you look at their and what I'm getting at with it, that is, that means that they had to have had faithful teaching for the church to be able to do that. Because most churches won't do that because they're not taught it, number one. And, you know, I mean, it, it just, most churches don't do it. All right? So, and there are times when a, a pastor, I've personally experienced this, a pastor might proceed in something like this and the church goes against him. <laughs> Uh, in, in this. Anyway, bottom line is this is what this is biblical. This is what uh, the Lord's commending them for. But a second thing here, and this is this is, I would say, a an awesome statement to be said about a church here. All right. Before I even read this, Brother Andy, could you turn to First John chapter four and read? I think the first six verses, but maybe I might stop you before you get there, but that to six. Listen, listen to this passage. First John chapter four. Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. Hereby know ye the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesseth that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. And this is that spirit of Antichrist, whereof ye have heard that it should come. And even now already is it in the world. Ye are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. They are of the world, therefore speak they of the world, and the world heareth them. We are of God, he that knoweth God heareth us, he that is not of God heareth not us, hereby know we the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. All right, that's just, there's a number of passages in the New Testament to that effect, but I don't know if you caught the gist. I mean, that passage starts out by saying, believe not every spirit, but what? Try the spirits. Now, that doesn't mean like, a taste test kind of trial. That means put them to the test. How are we to put something, some kind of something that's taught, some kind of doctrine out there? How do we put it to the test? It needs to be examined, right, by the Word of God. If it doesn't match up with what God says, it's a spirit of error. And by the way, 1 Timothy 4, which again, that, pat, that epistle was written to Timothy, left in Ephesus, and I didn't mention it. 1 John, I believe, was sent to Ephesus. John, the apostle, writing the church at Ephesus, all three of his epistles, but I'm not going to get into that right now. 
Um, but what I'm getting at, there's a strong connection in the New Testament with Ephesus and sound doctrine. And this church, notice the statement in uh, verse 2 again. He says, and thou hast tried them, you've put them to the test, those that say they are apostles, and they're not, and you've found them to be liars. That is a statement that could only be true of a church that was well-taught and tenaciously holding to the Scriptures, to the, church, to the truth of God truth of God. And I don't know of any other similar statement made of any other church in the New Testament, right? But this is a statement that Jesus makes of the church at Ephesus. They were commended for their doctrine that they were holding, okay? And again, we get, there's a whole lot more, but I got to move on here. There's one other doctrine. I'm, I'm going to, and I did this for organization of the, of the, the, the lesson here. But notice, on, if you look at the handout, page 2, under uh, Roman numeral 3, capital letter B, number 3, denouncement of the Nicolaitans here. All right, uh, verse 6, But this thou hast, that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So obviously this is a good thing. Jesus says, you hate the deeds of this group of people, and I hate that too. Now, notice it doesn't say he hates them, but he hates their deeds, right? Um, and by the way, our world can't seem to separate the two. But as a Bible believer, we should hate evil. We should hate what is wrong. But we don't hate the people. There's a big difference in that, all right? They should be treated with love and human dignity and human respect but they, but, and love, but the love of Christ, but... Truth has to be stood for, okay? So you see their doctrine here, right? Purity of membership, testing of apostleship, and again, trying to kind of keep that alliterated there. Um, they, they were able to prove sound doctrine, and that's, that's commendable. Most churches would probably fall very short in that category today. And also then their denouncement of the Nicolaitans. Now, who were the Nicolaitans? I'm just going to try to mention this real quickly. I don't have time to park here. It comes up in a couple more letters, so maybe we'll talk more about it later. But there's two main ideas that I'm aware of uh, regarding these people, all right? Because, by the way, this is the only place, these, these letters in the book of Revelation, the only place this comes up in the Bible itself. So it is kind of hard to say exactly what they were, but, or, or who they were, what they were doing. But their, their deeds... And their doctrine are both condemned in the book of Revelation chapters 2 and 3. All right? So whoever they were, they were obviously a detriment to biblical Christianity in the Lord's churches. Now, two main ideas that I, I'm aware of, all right? Uh, one is, many believe that these are Nicolaitans looking at the word itself. It's a combination of two words. A word that means to nikao, nikao, which is to, to, to have a victory over, to conquer, that kind of an idea. And then laos is people, so in other words, to conquer the people. These are, if, the, if that idea is true, it's the idea of those that lorded it over the Lord's church. All right. In other words, and, and historically you can see a development of, everybody's heard the word clergy, 
laity. Laity is the idea of the people. Clergy is the idea of those that were over the people. All right? And a lot of people believe that's what this is, and it's possible that's the case. I'm not saying it is or isn't, okay? That, and Because that certainly developed not terribly long and, and became very common in professed Christianity not terribly long after this. And, of course, that eventually has helped what form what is the Roman Catholic system today, all right? Um, but that is a possibility. The second possibility that is and maybe there's others, but the two main ones that I am aware of, the second is this is a group of people that some of the early Christian writers identified this group of people with, you remember in Acts chapter 6, the list of the seven that we call typically the first deacons there? One of them is named Nicholas. He's called a proselyte from, I think, Antioch. Um, but anyway, some of the earlier Christian writers associate the Nicolaitans with him that as, as if they were people that followed something he taught. Now, again, there's no evidence in the Bible that he ever did, okay? Uh, in fact, the evidence in the Bible of him is that he was a good guy, right? Chosen because of his faithfulness and spiritual qualifications to do something in the church. But anyway, so it's possible that if this is true, that the, these people later kind of falsely, you know, or maybe mistook something that he said, or I, but anyway, they claimed association with him. That's what this school of thought, this idea is, all right? And the idea is they believed in what's called antinomianism, which is, you know, basically libertinism. In other words, no law. You basically do what you want to do. Um, and generally, that's associated with moral aspects, all right? So in other words, there was nothing, kind of like in Jude, all right? Jude talks about how there were some that turned the grace of God into lasciviousness, which is sexual deviance, all right? Uh, in other words, they're saying that because of the grace of God, you can do what you want to do. There's no restraints, that idea. By the way, that's a very common thought in Christianity today. And I use the term Christianity very loosely, as you see the air quotes, right? That is a common. Everybody ever, everybody, yeah. has anybody ever heard? This, is, this happened predominantly, began back in the 90s, but there's a movement in what's, called, what's considered evangelical Christianity, which, you know, professing evangelical Christianity in the United States. There's a movement called the Grace Awakening. Anybody ever heard the name Chuck Swindoll? I'll just say the name, all right? He was very prominent in leading this movement. He wasn't the only one. Uh, but, and basically their idea is, okay, because God's grace, grace is, you know, God just overlooks everything. Now, that's, I don't believe that's biblical grace. Biblical grace is God comes to your help. He comes to your aid and does for you what you can't do, all right? Uh, and that applies to salvation and or Everything in the Christian life following salvation. We need God's help. We can't do it on our own. We need God's help. That's grace is God's help to those that don't deserve it. But that idea is because God is gracious, it doesn't really, and I'm, I'm, they wouldn't say it this way, but I'm just, this is what it boils down to, all right? Because God is gracious, 
you can do what you want to do. It really doesn't matter how you live, what you, I mean, and again, they wouldn't ever say it that openly, so to speak, but you read their stuff, that's basically what they're teaching. Um, anyway, that kind of a thought, okay, is what this idea of the Nicolaitans is often connected with in historical writings. Now, again, the Bible doesn't spell out exactly who these group, who this, these people were in any other, it's just in Revelation 2 and 3 here mentioned. So, that's possible here. But, but Jesus commends the church at Ephesus because they stood against this thought, and whichever it was, because both of those lines of thinking obviously are very wrong. They're not biblical, all right? Um, anyway. Then third area I have here of their commendation, verse 3, all right, we've read the verse, Thou hast borne, hast patience, and for my name's sake hast labored and hast not fainted. It's kind of reiterating what was already said, but just going a step further, if you want to say, really emphasizing the fact that this church had determinedly served the Lord in the face of opposition, and they, they stood tenaciously for truth and in their serving of the Lord they didn't stop and those are you can't say enough how commendable those things are that that should be the case in any church all right then we come to verse 4 and you see a condemnation that's delivered here so notice verse 4, he says, nevertheless, the idea is this is a strong, the word that's used here is a strong contrast. I have all these great things that I, I am so glad are there, however, <laughs> that kind of an idea. You ever had, you know, maybe your boss or something, I just, but, <laughs> you know, uh, so strong contrast. He says, I have somewhat against thee. Now, notice the word somewhat is in italics. You notice that? That means that the translator supplied that because there's no, no Greek word there that says somewhat. It's just to complete the thought. But the point being is, it's as if he says, I have against you. All right? Uh, there's something that he's wanting to point out. And he does. But... In contrast to all their good things, he's, he says, There's, there is something I have to point out. And then he says, because, or really it could be the idea of that, this is what that something is, thou hast left thy first love. Now, I have to hurry here because time is fleeting, but... They left their first love. And I, I included some things in your handout that define the word and so on here. Um, he delivers this sentence to them. All right. Um, and it is a serious thing, by the way. And we are all susceptible to it. I, I didn't even mention it at the beginning, but if you were to look at the title on your handout, it says, of course, the letter from the Lord Jesus to the church at Ephesus, but it says a church with 
heart disease. Every one of these churches, I, I, I have given a description of what I think kind of summarizes their problem uh, or the characteristic that's, that's predominant there. And this is the idea with this church. I mean, they were fervent in serving the Lord, fervent for standing for truth, but I have a, he's, he's actually deceased now, but I was going to say a preacher friend, uh, a mentor in some ways, but he would say they lost their heart. And basically the idea is their love. And, and just to cut right to it, I mean, I believe what this first love he's talking about here is their love for the Lord. Their devotion, all right? They had duty. They had dedication and, and doctrine, but their devotion had waned. And by that, I mean their personal communion, devotion with the Lord. They would never have uh, said, no, we're, we're, you know, I mean, the Lord is obviously the most important and so on. But in there, it's, it's as like when our personal time with the Lord lacks. We can do the right things, but we can lose our devotion, our personal devotion to the Lord. And we're all susceptible to that. It's called human nature, by the way. We must purposefully foster that communion and devotion with the Lord. I believe that's what he's talking about with the first love because who is to have first love in our lives? Who is first place, to be first place? It's obviously always the Lord. What is the greatest commandment? Jesus was asked that question. He responded with what? In Matthew 22. Love. Love the Lord. The first of the Ten Commandments says what? Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Nothing is to get in the place of God in our lives, but often it does, and it can easily. Doesn't mean we've renounced our doctrine. Doesn't mean we've stopped in our duties, but God wants our heart to be there too, and the greatest, I mean, think about this. There's a lot of motivations for people to do things. And even some, a lot of, we could say, good motivations. I mean, fear is a motivation. We are afraid something will happen. I'll, I'll say, there are many times in my life I did not do something because I was afraid of what the consequences would be. That's not, I mean, that's, a, that's good. But you know what? The greatest motivation that we can have in doing anything for the Lord is what? Because we love Him. We want to please Him. I mean, not just because we're afraid such and such might happen. Or, you know, there's times I've done things in my life not always because I love the Lord so much, but because I didn't want somebody else to see me doing, you know, not doing it or whatever. I mean, you know what I'm saying. Everybody's been there, I'm sure. It, it, but it is, it's easy to get in that boat. 
there's an event that stands out in my life, and, and I'll, you know, I'll just put it this way, and i gotta, I got to stop. But this was a long time ago. Uh, in fact, actually, it was the day before or the day after I actually got saved. I had gone into a store to purchase a gallon of milk. And the Lord impressed on my heart to give a track to the person. At, I, don't, I can't even picture who it was now. The attendant at the store. You know what? Even before that, even before I was saved, I'd given a lot of tracks out. Done a lot of things, you know. Anyway, and I can clearly remember the Lord impressing that on my heart, and, and I did not do it. I walked out of the store with the gallon of milk, and my heart was just so heavy and burdened. And the thought in my heart was, if I take another step, I am, I am not right with God. And that bothered me so much, I turned around, went back in the store, and by that time, there's a long line, and I'm waiting in line. The time I get up there, you know, the same person, he's like, can I help you, whatever? And, and I don't even remember exactly what I said, but something like, I need to give you this. I should have done it when I checked out before. He took it, looked at it, and... He probably threw it down and next person, whatever. But you know what? I walked out of that store the second time knowing that I was right with God and my, you know, I mean, my, with a love for God in my heart, if I can say it that way. And sadly, okay, that hasn't always been the case in my life as a Christian. But that's an example of it. But my, my point of that is there's a difference in doing the right things and, but in loving God in doing it. And that's the issue with this church. And I, I, we just have to stop there. I guess we'll try to finish that up next week and look at the next letter. The next one's the shortest of all the seven letters. So, But... Our hearts are very important, and the state, and by that I mean you know, the condition of our hearts in any given time in our Christian lives is of utmost important to the Lord, to the Lord. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for just this portion of your word, and obviously there's so much more here, but... Thank you. Thank you for the Lord Jesus. And because you, you showed your love for us in such an extreme way. And obviously, you deserve our utmost love. I pray you would help me to live that way. Help us each to live that way. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.